Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Robin and Marion are back together. Let's go to Sherwood, everybody. For over six centuries, the legend of Robin Hood and Maid Marion has inspired hundreds of ballads, books, operas, plays, and movies. And now, the legend becomes a love story. Columbia Pictures presents Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn in Robin and Marion. Go fight the sheriffs and the kings. I love you and you make me proud. I thought the man was dead. He's back in Sherwood. Robin is back in Sherwood, I said. We're here to serve you, Robin. And fight against that king. They're flocking to him in hundreds. He's become a legend. Have you ever tried to fight a legend? To some, he was a hero who would bring them hope. To some, he was a common thief to be hunted down. To some, he was an enemy to be respected and feared. To Marion, the woman he loved, he was her man. You're so beautiful. Come and sit by me. You know, we, we are doing this Robin Hood series, and we had our Patreon supporters vote on the films that we're talking about. And I was looking at them uh, because we were talking about them on the back channels over on Discord. And, you know, I was like, you know, we're, we have nine Robin Hood films we're talking about. And I'd say roughly half of them, four of the nine films, are different takes on the story. And I think that that's actually kind of 
interesting. And there are certainly elements um, to kind of the just the overall Robin Hood story in this one. But I think that this has done an interesting job in kind of shifting the entire thing to, you know, what if Arrow, it's, 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 I can picture Hollywood pitching this in the era of Hook, you know, what if Peter Pan grew up? This is like, what happened when Robin Hood came back 20 years later? Yeah, it's just it's that total kind of Hollywood pitch. But I think that it came out at an interesting time that allowed for them to do some interesting stuff with it. So, yes, a long, long way to say I agree with you. It feels different. Well, it is. It's certainly an interesting uh, and and compelling entry in our Robin Hood series. And it's 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 this marks, I think, the peak. Right. It's all downhill from here. Uh, in our our long series of Robin Hood films, um, yes. If this was a week, this would be Wednesday. This is Wednesday. Hump it's hump. Right it's hump movie right here. That sounds terrible. I say we talk more about Robin and Marion right after this. The next reel is sponsored by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash the next reel and sign up for a new account, and you'll have access to one audiobook of your choice on us. That's audibletrial.com slash the next reel. And, Andy, in the spirit of war and Audrey Hepburn. Two great tastes that taste great together. Right. <laughs> I have a recommendation that I just added to my very own queue today, Audrey Hepburn and World War II by Robert Matson, in cooperation with her son, Luca Dotti. This book tells the story of her five-year stretch in Nazi-occupied Netherlands. She served in the Dutch Resistance and as a doctor's assistant in major battles and survived the hunger winter of 1944. Oh, and did you know her father was a Nazi agent through much of the occupation? It wow. sounds like an incredible story of a period that really defined Hepburn as a performer and a humanitarian for the rest of her life. It even includes a PDF. If you get the book, you can download this PDF uh, that uh, offers all the photography contained in the print edition of the book, many from her personal collection published in this book for the very first time. Get Audrey Hepburn and World War II or any book from their extensive catalog for free. Just sign up at audibletrial.com slash the next reel to get started and support the show today. It feels different. We've already established that about this film. Mm -hmm. How does it work for you? Yeah, I, it's an interesting thing. This Robin and Marion, you get this movie, it's it feels very much like it's it's pitching you as a romance, right? This is what happens when, you know, years later after the Robin Hood that we think we know comes back to uh discover that he's still interested in Marion and he wants to woo her and it's going to be a romance. And uh I was I was thrilled with the setup of the story. I thought it was interesting and fun and compelling, and it 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 was a a grittier kind of take on the story. It was certainly filthy, um, and, and I liked that. And then they introduce this relationship thing that is ostensibly the central premise of the film, and I was tuning out. I was just not interested in what they were telling me in you know the setup of the film that I should be interested in. I wanted more of old Robin and Merry Men and less, uh, frankly, of Marion. Even though it's called Robin and Marion, not it Robin is, and Merry Men. As you, Andy, intern, please, we need to remake <laughs> this movie because you just fixed it. 
I would have seen that movie in a heartbeat. I just felt like this, uh, the aging romance didn't work here. And that means that the end of the film, which we're absolutely going to talk about, is, I guess, even more shocking and not in a, a great way for me. How did it hit you? I, better than you, um, certainly. I think I found it to be a pretty compelling film. I think that it's one of those stories that could have been written better. Um, and perhaps this does speak to why you struggled with it in general, uh, particularly <clears throat> as it revolved around the romance. I think that I, I really actually loved the coupling of Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn as Robin and Marion. I think that they worked well together. I loved watching them on screen when they were on uh, sharing sharing the screen together. I think that there was a really compelling relationship there that felt established. That's what I really loved about this film is it felt like these two had been lovers 20 years ago and now we're kind of coming back into that. I really loved all of that stuff. I think that the film itself... Uh, has a lot of really compelling stuff going for it in the uh, in, in in taking us down this this uh, path again with Robin Hood, Little John, the Sheriff of Nottingham, uh, Marion, the Merry Men, King Richard, all of these people. And kind of saying, you know, what could have happened and giving us kind of a continuation story. I think that it works in that sense really well. But I do think that they could have used some stronger writing in it to actually make some of it uh, sell a little better for me. Um, because I think that there's a lot of it that's there, but I just don't think that the script was as strong as it could have been. And this is one of those interesting films that I think that it could be redone and reworked and this would be an interesting remake to see people tell this story again, because we, as I mean, this series is nine films long of Robin Hood, and we're only scratching the surface. Uh, people are bound to make another Robin Hood movie. This would be an interesting remake and find some writers who can really draw the the core of the story out and do something interesting. But I, I think there could be uh, a lot there. It's just not quite there, but I found it compelling enough. Well, I think that's probably where things fell apart for me, that that the the writing of the story between Marion and Robin, uh, I, I just didn't connect with. And I, it actually surprises me a little bit that you like them so much. I wanted to like it so much because I like Sean Connery and, and Hepburn so, so much. And I felt like this is going to be another one of those stories. And, you know, after we did The Lion in Winter and we saw uh, such a wonderful relationship, uh, and, and this was again in the hands of James Goldman, the writer, I thought, that, you know, here's a guy who tells big stories about big people like this at this time, you know. Know, to, to be able to handle, he, if anybody should be able to handle uh, a story like this, it's that. Then why did so much of the scripting of the romance feel um, so clumsy? And, and I'll say some specific places, you know, trying to pitch Sean Connery, who is always really Sean Connery, as a guy who you know, of the period who can't read, uh, you know, who um, or it doesn't know how to write like those little quips of comedy felt totally unearned and out of character for the rest of the film. I found them super distracting and those didn't impact you. Those feels like feel like like right in the Andy Nelson hot zone. 
Oh, no, that's what I'm talking about. Like, those are the elements that were terrible, but that doesn't affect the relationship because it's that is consistent throughout the film. Some of that sloppy comedy writing, like, you know, why didn't you write me? I can't write, you know, and just lines like that that were pretty rough. That Th- Those are I, the lines that you expect to take you to commercial over a band break. You know what I mean? Like, they just didn't. They didn't yeah, fly. or like when Marion crashes the wagon and he's like, she could never drive. You oh. know, it's like, man. Oh, it's yeah, just okay. But see, it's more than that, because, I mean, earlier in the film, when we see him taking her out of the the uh, abbey where she's living, he kicks the guy in the crotch to kind of get past uh, get past him. And I'm like, uh, yeah, OK, so that's that's the struggle I have is I feel like there's a lot of really interesting, compelling character stuff going on in this film, like the what happened with Marion after he left she was so uh in such bereavement that she tries to slit her wrists and she's only saved um by some passers-by who take her to this nunnery where she's healed and she becomes a nun that's really interesting stuff at the whole opening with with uh king richard where you get to see kind of the realities of king richard the lionheart and what an awful person he is was incredible like i loved everything going on there and those are the moments in this film that work really well. And and I will say, even some of the comedy where they uh, use the age of these characters to kind of get through the comedy, I found worked better. Like when Robin and Little John are escaping when they were trying to free the nuns from the sheriff and they get and the gate shuts and you see them climbing out <laughs> and it's yeah, just that's like a, everybody's that is watching a high these point. two old guys are scaling this wall it was like that was a kind of a, a comedy beat that i appreciated i thought that was kind of interesting because it then you know ends in like this violent fight where they're killing everybody they get hurt they have to jump into this wagon it just that felt like more of the story that I really wanted to see. Those comedy beats otherwise were really rough and, and disruptive. Yeah, and and that that sequence when they're the, the climbing the gate sequence, which has become now a Robin Hood trope, right? <laughs> We've had it, I think, enough times that that's a thing I expect. That that it's it is such a struggle for them to get up over the top, and they get themselves over the top only to jump into the hay hay laden you know wagon to have it completely disintegrate under their weight i i think is it is just great comedy it's fantastic comedy and uh that's that's where this movie really hits its stride in the robin hood part uh that they just really lay in on on some of those physical beats that and i think they just they get it right getting uh, having richard shot in the neck by an an arrow that is thrown from the battlements of the castle in the opening and i don't even actually now remember what his line was what did he say like oh god or something like that <laughs> good like he was very upset about it but not scared he was just mad <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and i thought that was that was just a, an amazing sort of crossover between that grit and the comedy and just this is a movie that was that you know sets up very early that it's going to try and subvert your expectations of what this story is and i think it in many areas it does it very well I think that a point that you made actually about the love story um, when we, when you first were talking about how you felt uh, addresses largely another element of the, I think, to a certain extent, the perhaps confusion about how to tell this particular story. Obviously, you know, we don't know what went on behind closed doors with the team that was making this film. We don't know. 
uh, what uh, Richard Lester, the director, had to say to James Goldman, the writer, as they were kind of coming up with it and how they kind of structured the script and, and whatnot. But what we do know is that the studio, Columbia Pictures, uh, was really kind of nervous about this film when they were first uh, in talks with it because it was called The Death of Robin Hood, which right there tells you this is a dark mm-hmm. 70s take on the Robin Hood story. They were nervous about it, though. They wanted it to be more marketable. And so and, and then the, and it says perhaps also to give equal billing to Catherine Hepburn. It was changed to Robin and Marion. And all of the marketing, like every poster that I've seen in my research, is always kind of that uh, kind of key embrace of the two characters, um, you know, Robin and Marion in a hug. Up that's against kind, a tree, yeah. Yeah, that's like the marketing for the film. And so it's interesting that that is how they decided to really push the marketing for this. And perhaps that also speaks to part of the reason, part of the um, the struggle that the storytellers had in figuring out how to tell this story. You know, is it going to be this love story? Is it going to be this story about this death of this, this mythical hero? And how can we balance between the two? Clearly, it didn't work. Um, there were issues with it. Would would that have fixed it for you? And in terms of a central question, had they stuck with the original title? Would that have have? When I don't want to say fixed it for you because you clearly, I mean, it worked for you. I, I guess I should ask: Would that have fixed it for me? Uh, I, I think it would have been an, an, a spoiler to a, a pretty essential level, and I, I'm not wouldn't have generally been a fan of that. But um, it, it at least would have pivoted the marketing to the point where it would have set me up for a different kind of Robin Hood story. But I don't think that's uh, I. I mm. I struggle with that because I I don't think the title came like at the last moment where they made a film called The Death of Robin Hood. This was that film. And then they got cold feet and just changed the title. Clearly, this was a romance by intention. Yeah, I feel like Columbia, it it sounded like, I I don't know. I, I don't know enough of the history of this film. I don't know when that change happened. But the way that I read it. And maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it sounded like the change happened earlier on when it was still kind of in the process of development. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Now I'm curious, you know, was it made as the death of Robin Hood and then they changed it at the last minute or did they change it and emphasize or dictate to the writers, give a little boost to the romance in there just to uh, make Audrey happy? I don't know. I don't know. But this is uh, this is the film we're left with. And I guess if this was called the death of Robin Hood, I don't I don't know. Uh, I think. I don't know. I guess I would be okay with the title. I think it might work better, actually. Any title <laughs> probably would have, um, you know, would have worked better. Uh, apart from a, you know, leaning in even more heavily on the romance. Uh, I, I think anything would have set up the. I, I really like the effort to set up the age of these characters. That's the uniqueness of it, not the fact that we're trying to to rekindle this romance. Every Robin Hood story has the romance. Every one of them does. I didn't get anything new about just sort of having that story, that part of the story retold. I do like the things that you you have already mentioned, the fact that they're pushing on Audrey Hepburn's sort of backstory. I don't feel like they pushed hard enough to make her uh, a 50 percent participant in this story. It was still a Robin Hood story. 
Yeah, right. I don't know. For me, I felt like they dealt with that in a way where I kind of really liked that aspect of their relationship. As far as the love story goes, their conversations, I think, had a lot of uh, points made about that as far as, you know, because I don't know, to me, it spoke to life as a woman in this particular period of time. You know, he goes off to war and she's left. And this is a woman who completely loves him, but she's left with nothing and and is bereft and has nothing to do. And, and she's kind of empty. And so she tries to kill herself. That was a really interesting angle. And the fact that she joins um, the nunnery and the fact that she kind of changes her entire life. I don't know. I found that to be really interesting. And when he came, when he came back and she, uh, they kind of reconnect, I found some of their conversations to be interesting as far as kind of that, uh, trying to find what that relationship was and finding that love again. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And even right up to the end, when she has her speech about how much she loves him, I I don't know. I kind of liked some of those elements to it. So it's it's funny because I, I like how some of that is handled. I I don't know. I think I like it a lot more than you do. I think my struggle is is the sloppy comedy. Well, let's talk a little bit more about though this wrap up the the romance part. And that takes us all the way up to the end. You already mentioned the last speech. And I I think so much of of this hinges on her relationship with the church, with God, uh, and all of that coming into conflict with her present, which is this rekindled relationship. And and it it all comes to uh, her final speech. I love you more than more than all you know. I love you more than children, more than the fields I've planted with my hands. I love you more than morning prayers or peace or food to eat. I love you more than sunlight, more than flesh or joy or one more day. I love you more than God, her last line of that speech. And at this point, we know that she has um, she has poisoned herself under the auspices of giving Robin medicine. She has poisoned him as well and has killed them both. They spin it. I think they, you know, they spin it as this, this, you know, a, a grand act of romance and I think grief on her part that she's had so much conflict and trauma in her life and that she's kind of, this is her final act of, of ending it on, as I think they tried to say, a good day. Robin says, I never would have had a better day than this, right? No, this was it. Um, so how does that end up working for you, the way this movie ends? The film is doing interesting things with with the main characters throughout, like the, the relationship between Robin and the sheriff is another one that we'll definitely have to talk about um, because of the way that that journey is. This is really a film about endings and closure. Right. And I think that it's it's a really odd decision for her to to poison both of them so that they die. But in context, it actually is, I don't know, it's a very 70s kind of way to end this story where she it kind <laughs> yeah. of acknowledges this love that they have for each other, but knowing that Robin needs so much more than just this love. I mean, they had the perfect love 20 years ago, but he goes off to the Crusades, and uh, which I thought was an interesting comparison when she's talking to Little John, and he's like, if you were mine, I never would have left. And I think that speaks to Robin's position and how 
this is an element of his life that he's not ever going to be able to um, to step away from. And I think that the moment of of her decision to kind of poison the two of them after he has had this successful final victorious battle with the sheriff of Nottingham um, to to poison him and kill him, knowing that you know this is the end of his story. And I think he knows that if he lived, if if she healed him and he lived past this point, he would go stir crazy because he wouldn't, you know, have a way to kind of continue to do what it, the things that he needs to do. And this is kind of the way that he needs to go out. And so, I don't, and, and she needed to go out because she loved him so much that she couldn't continue without him. And so, again, I think that they could have built up to it a little better throughout the film, like really build that love that she had been kind of hiding and, and not showing him so that that moment really carried for me. But even though it didn't carry as strongly as I wanted it to, I found it really compelling. As usual, Andy, you have a well-reasoned approach to the climax of this film. It is a controversial climax, and I have to tell you, it is hogwash. (laughs) I can't believe that you buy it so fully and completely. She chose to end a career for him that is full of an uncertain future. And I did not feel like that, like her taking those choices away from him were earned. Uh, You know, we had. Uh, what she was doing was tantamount to uh, what the uh, you know, the sheriff's men were doing, it just absolutely massacring the merry men in Sherwood Forest. Uh, you Not know, the it, it is just men. well. I mean, they were the yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, the sheriff yeah. was gone. It was the other guys. You know. What, Sir I Reynolds. I don't have his name. Sir Reynolds. Yeah, his he him not making good on the promises of. Uh, the sheriff and uh, i i just feel so much like that and and this i know is on the back of me not buying their relationship as as thoroughly as you did that it just felt like a it was a shock an unearned one and and it felt um uh it, it felt like it um it, it ruined the opportunity for me to to sort of celebrate what uh, i really wanted to see in this movie which actually was a happy ending. I wanted to see a guy, you know, in, in his field. I wanted to see him wander into the forest and know that he was going to make a life there. And I think if this movie does anything well, it's demonstrate that, um, you know, they can build a life in the forest together pretty quickly and make it look authentic and believable and real. And And I thought that was really great. I think the ending uh, was a robbery of what could have been a really nice way to tie the movie together. So 70s. My God. So 70s. <laughs> well, I guess she was just taking after him. She learned from watching him. She was robbing from the rich. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh, dear, Andy. Oh, dear. Sweet, sweet, Andy. All right. Then let's talk a little bit about the sheriff, our good Robert Shaw. Um, and uh, the uh, as our principal antagonist. How do you do for you? That was another really interesting relationship. I, I think the film did a good job of setting up uh, Robert uh, Shaw's character, uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham, along with Robin Hood as two characters who were kind of going 
like they 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 needed to kind of have a better closure. Like I think Robin felt like he wanted to come back and settle down with Marion. And then he got there and it was not quite enough for him and and uh, I think that that was an interesting element of his character. And the sheriff was just like I mean he was kind of going crazy like you know, he couldn't advance because he was too smart to advance and he was stuck in this role of sheriff and he was just basically you know, having these these young people, you know, he kind of in training, and he had this Sir Ranulph as his kind of uh, I don't know what his role is, assistant sheriff. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, deputy. Deputy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, he needed some closure too, and I think that's why he was so excited when Robin Hood came back. And and I I don't know, I just felt like Shaw played it so well and the way he would deliver lines like when Randolph was just like he's a dead man and he's like that's right but he's my dead man you know I just it it was such an interesting take on the character and and uh, the way that he needed to kind of have this end with with Robin and I loved the way that it ended with them as far as him kind of waiting Robin out outside of the forest for Robin to come out so they could finally have the grand duel between these two characters that really kind of was the end of their relationship. Um, and that was what a great duel. I, I love duels that have kind of a sense of authenticity. And this one was one that had this pacing of two old tired men as they were taking swings at each other and trying to kill each other. And really kind of established the place, too, because uh, and just kind of the sense of scale, you know, these two men fighting all these close ups, but then you kind of cut back and it's a medium shots of them. And then you cut like way back. And it's these two guys fighting like, <laughs> little dots in the distance fighting. And they're like, there's a guy with his sheep off, you know, doing his business. It's like it's such an inconsequential thing in the scheme of things. But to them, it was like the pivotal moment. I thought it was a really interesting way to, to kind of conclude their relationship. Well, first, your comment on the way it was portrayed, just being able to use, and this is David Watkin on camera and, and you know, with Lester, uh, Richard Lester, just making those decisions on how to use those ultra-wide shots and between those medium and close shots. Uh, I, I think you're right. Every time it changed perspective like that, it was shocking, right? Shocking because we're taking a role of, you know, the peasant in the distance watching, wonder what those two idiots are doing, you know? <laughs> what are those two old men doing swatting at each other? Uh, and then to those extreme close-ups where you see some pretty grisly uh, hits. Most of the hit, the the sword shots don't feel uh, particularly gruesome in this movie, like throughout the just general fighting. And then you get some of these shots in this fight where he he's like cleaving meat. <laughs> from Connery's side like it just really feels like uh, like they've made impact and and um you know I I said that what I wanted out of this movie or out of their relationship was was an opportunity to see him grow old what I wanted during this fight more than anything else as an audience member was to see the death of Robin Hood in in a way that is somehow um you know, uh, 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 I felt like the 70s version of this was going to give me a chance to see him die in a way that demonstrated his life. Uh, you know, so many of the choices that he made lacked meaning. That was the 70s trope I felt like we were going to see, that Robin Hood dies at the hands of authority. And it was for what? For nothing. 
thank you 1970s filmmaking uh and and so I feel like that's the thing I, I kind of wanted at that moment. Once he lived, I wanted him to just live. But had he died, I would have felt rewarded in this sequence right here. Uh, uh, one more note on Robert Shaw, though. I, I think the way this character was written and the way they used him and the way he used his forces to to play with the Merry Men in the forest, I think, was brilliant it was so much fun to watch him uh they would send people robin and his men he would send people out to taunt them and and the sheriff would never bite he would never bite he was sitting in a chair watching he was and, and then he's shaving in the bath i mean all of these little moments really demonstrated a, a fantastic take on the sheriff of nottingham that i think again was interesting it was a really um i think a bold twist on this character that made it really fun yeah yeah definitely He's an actor who carries a lot of weight uh, and presence in quiet moments. And that was something I think I wasn't expecting with the Sheriff of Nottingham character to have a little more of that quiet retrospective presence. Wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. He telegraphed he telegraphed wisdom, and that makes him a much more complex sort of sheriff than we've had before. Who have, have uh, these are characters who have been, you know, uh, run the gamut between just you know lampoons, bumbling fools, uh, to just straight up you know deputies to uh, royalty or then the church. And here we have a, a character with some agency. And it's a return of Robert Shaw and Sean Connery as adversaries after From Russia With Love. Yeah, that's right. From Russia With Love, mm -hmm. which was in, this when was, was that? 63. 13 so, years before 63, this. 63. 13 years. Y'all know me. Well, I think we should uh, just talk a little bit about just some of the other characters that we have. And I would like to start the bidding with Richard Harris as King Richard. <laughs> What do you think of what they did here, just before we talk about Harris specifically, about what they did here to the character of King Richard uh, after, you know, we have have watched all these other films? Well, I think not only is it coming after we've watched these other, other films, but I think an important note to discuss in context of this particular film is after we've talked about The Lion in Winter, which, as you pointed out, was also written by James Goldman, who wrote this, because that is dealing with a younger Richard and his brother um, when they are still kind of under the shadow of their own father. And so I think... He is putting an interesting perspective on these characters, taking them out of kind of the the space where history has kind of painted them or at least painted uh, the Lionheart as kind of such this this savior when he returns to England and makes everything better for the people and actually giving him some grit and a sense of reality and kind of this idea of who a king really can be and just how ruthless and cold and uncaring they can be. That was the aspect of this that I found to be really interesting, was that they took this uh, version of King Richard to a really dark place. They did, and they made—I think they really leveraged one of the great gifts of this film, which is age and power. Age and power in the hands—consolidated in the hands of this particular monarch made him a despot. And and I think that was most interesting coming off of, of these other films in which he is portrayed as just a straight-up hero. 
Yeah, I think Richard Harris is a fantastic actor, especially when he gets to play just this sort of awful character. I love watching Richard Harris in these sorts of roles. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting that he and Sean Connery had worked together in 1970 on the Molly Maguires. And Connery actually is the one who asked him uh, to uh, play the cameo of the King Richard in this particular film, which I think is great because Connery himself will later play a cameo of King Richard the Lionheart in a different Robin Hood film that we will talk about later. Can we just talk briefly about seeing Ian Holm as King John? It's a small part. Again, it felt like uh, James Goldman was, was digging into kind of some of the history as far as it goes. I was really disgusted you know, with him and his 12-year-old bride, especially because I have a 12-year-old yeah. daughter and imagining her. And, and the hard, fact that we see her, too, to she kind of pops out of the tent <laughs> and it's like, are you coming back in or whatever she says. And Oh, she says, I'm all clean now. Yeah. It's it's just... I was like, wow. It's a horrible, it's a horrible little sequence. Yeah. That was the time. And yuck, yuck, yuck. Pretty awesome. That was the time. And a, and a crazy little bit part for Ian Holm. It was uh, fascinating to see him quite so young yeah, uh, yeah. himself um, and, and I felt the same way as we just sort of move into the to to Robin's lads uh, seeing Denholm Elliott as Will Scarlet uh, was a real treat yeah it was it was kind of fun to see him uh, pop up in this I mean it wasn't a big part none of them were huge parts other than little John but I think mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of fun to see him and of course he and Sean Connery uh, this is the first of four films they're going to do together the last of which we've talked about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade been a long time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now it, you already mentioned it's a much more significant part played by Nicole Williamson uh, as uh, little John I really liked this little John. I did too. I think that it was just because, again, like this is the sort of pensive character looking back on his life after all this time being away. And now he's kind of in this place where he's a little more retrospective. And I think having a chance to have this conversation with Marion about, uh, you know, she's like, you don't like me, do you? He's like, yeah, you're John's girl. And, you know, and he's like, but I wouldn't have left you. You know, if it was if you were mine, I don't know. I felt like there was a really interesting aspect to his character and his uh, I think his uh, allegiance to Robin, uh, even though he knows, I think, at times that it's foolhardy to kind of make some of the decisions that they're making. He's an interesting guy. Do you uh, happen to collect his uh, his any of his work as a singer? I don't. I'm looking through his filmography. I, I feel like the only thing that I've seen him in uh, was probably, well, as Spawn, his final film role in the right, right. Uh, Todd McFarlane's Spawn, Cogliostro. and then in Return to Oz. Yeah, Return to Oz. That's interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it, it's a funny, um, a, a funny list of credits that I, I too have not seen. Uh, most of what he has done. Oh, Excalibur. Uh, he was in Excalibur. Interesting. What was he in Excalibur? I don't have. He was Merlin. Oh, he was Merlin. Look he at was that. Merlin. Oh, and I saw. Yeah, him. I've seen him in more, like the Goodbye Girl. Well, okay, so well, and I've, and I've heard him in the Wind in the Willows, and um, he was in The Exorcist Three. I know you've seen that. Nope. What? I've only seen the first, the first Exorcist. Wow, that seems out of character. <laughs> we should address that at some point. Uh, or not, whatever. I mean, we didn't really talk about Audrey Hepburn 
much other than the fact that she was in it and mm-hmm. kind of her role. But I, I think that it's uh, this was a period in her life where she kind of had semi-retired. She wasn't really doing much in the way of film. This is her first film after eight years after Wait Until Dark in 1967 because she was kind of giving more time to her family. And I, I think that that's... Uh, uh, you know, kind of always a nice thing to hear when when people step away to do that. And this was kind of the start of kind of a an off and on comeback, I guess I would say. You know, she didn't come back very often. I think after this, she only made a couple more films and uh, some TV shows and stuff before doing like little cameos like in uh, Steven Spielberg's Always, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, I, yeah, I... I, uh, but she's an actress that I have always liked. And actually, I think that she was hitting this point in her age where, I don't know, I, th- I think it speaks to all these actors, actually. They are now at a point in their lives where they're carrying a sense of um, the weight of the world and a kind of knowledge of life and death. And uh, that wisdom and everything. And I feel like there's a lot of that in her. And even if the script isn't always written as well as it should have been, I still feel that between her and and uh, Sean Connery. I think this is a movie that they gave her, they tried to shoehorn too much character in into her part because i i think especially after talking about it one of the things i can imagine is maybe that we this this should have been two movies right robin and then marion like i would love a movie that tells some of the story about her grief over those that that period that would be an interesting study of of a character that we've come to know over this time they've they've imbued her with something really fascinating and it just doesn't work all jammed in together for me in this thing i but but there is maybe a uh, you know, goes back to the Robin Hood cinematic universe that we were talking about. I can almost see this Marion as like a CW series of 10 episodes and it airs right after Batgirl or something, you know, where it's her figuring out her youth and then she takes up the arrow and yeah, I can totally see it. Yeah. That would actually be really interesting to, to see kind of, more versions of this story see people tell us <laughs> we need we need more versions of that story <laughs> <laughs> and we'll cover them all uh, i i want to talk to you about uh about john barry <laughs> okay the music in general was not great okay the my first problem which is that the music doesn't fit the scene most of the way through the movie right there are some elements where the fight like the fight sequence i think the music is good but generally the music is way too happy for some way too intense visuals on the screen i think they just didn't match it's like barry was doing a score for a different movie and was only told later that there was going to be robin hood (laughs) <laughs> or maybe he was told it was Robin Hood and that it wasn't going it was going to be less fighting and he just made something frilly and frothy it just didn't work i okay uh, this is going back to a camera or another conversation we had recently um i like the music i think the music actually is like i love john Barry's score for this but watching it i think that you are right i feel like the music may not fit uh, no here's the thing I feel like, and I don't know if this is true, I feel like the studio had John Barry write it and said, it's a romance. 
write us some romantic music. It's about Robin and Marion later in life. He wrote the music without having watched the movie and gave it to them to put in. 100% what I'm sure that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of funny, but I I like the music. But yes, perhaps it doesn't always fit exactly what is happening. Yeah, yeah. When they're having their little shoot off in the the woods and you hear the happy music and then one of the sheriff's men gets shot in the eye with an arrow. Uh, (laughs) It it just doesn't it just doesn't uh, always fit. So I, I struggled with John Barry's score here for that very reason. Yeah, I can see that. One note that we, I I just have to jump backward because we forgot to mention this. A dude throws an arrow (laughs) into Richard Harris's neck. Yeah. A one-eyed man throws an arrow. That to me was just like, (laughs) so great. That is one of those things. It happens in the first, I I don't know, four minutes of the movie. And, And I felt like, okay. They're trying to tell me what kind of movie this is. I get this. I get this. This is like, uh, it's going to be a little Tarantino. It's going to feel like, you know, uh, Robin Hood in a Tarantino version of Robin Hood. I get it. I feel good about it. <laughs> and the, then they just betrayed me for the rest of the movie. Just, uh, you know, then they introduced this love story and, and I felt betrayed. Well, Shot it wasn't overly violent. I think that's arrow. it wasn't quite a Tarantino moment, but it was it was an odd thing. And because it was a one-eyed man, I couldn't help but feel like it was something that was supposed to be out of like a Greek tragedy. Like you would see like this one-eyed person who uh, should never have this sort of skill, but mm-hmm. like the hands of the gods give him the, you know, the ability to hit hit this mark and and you know, it's almost like a weird ancient greek curse sort of moment. yes it, it's it is, as I much zeus reaching through the hands of prometheus right it was yeah the clash of the titans jam yeah i i get it yeah yeah we haven't talked about richard lester before on this show as a director mm-hmm. what do you think of richard lester as a director he is a director who i think carries a bit of controversy in some circles um he's i think known in part by some people because of the Beatles films that he directed. Yeah, Hard, yeah, Day's right. Night Hard Day's Night is right Help. up at the top of the list. Um, I, I think uh, he also directed a lot of kind of early kind of the sex comedies like The Knack and How to Get It. He directed Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, stuff that his career is known for. In the 70s, certainly period films was one of them, including this. He also did The Three Musketeers, The Four Musketeers. And uh, maybe we shouldn't mention stuff like Butch and Sundance, the early days. But then there's the whole Superman aspect of his career. And he was the guy who was kind of brought in to do Superman 2. And it was this whole debacle because Richard Donner had directed most of it. But the, um, the, uh, I'm blanking on their names, the, what are their names? The, uh, the producers of the, of those films, the well, I can't remember what their names are, but the producers had him come in and direct it, the rest of it, and it created this huge rift. And Gene Hackman refused to come in and do reshoots. And Alexander and Ilya Salkind, by yeah, the, the Salkinds, right? Yeah, um, it was like this insane situation that he was uh, part of. And um, a lot of people say that, you know, his cut of Superman 2 is an abomination. And then especially because he showed the world what he thought of Superman by making Superman 3, which 
um, is uh, it was a box office success, but is kind of a weird uh, movie that most people don't consider a very good Superman movie, let's just say. Well, it's been, I, I think it has been all but excised from canon for most Superman fans, right? I mean, it's just the thing we've just sort of moved on. Um, when when you put Richard Pryor in a movie as a hacker. Yeah. Yep. Let's just leave it at that. Yep. Yep. It's yeah. practically uh, Black Hat. I have to say, I am a big fan of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. I think it was, oh, a, yeah. a, it is one of those movies that just defines that that kind of comedy. And I think he he has a real knack for that. And I, I, you can sort of feel that coming through in Robin and Marion, uh, albeit, uh, you know, what is that, 10, 11 years later? Um, like it, it is, it's his touch to it that it just went. It just seemed to go south after that. I haven't seen anything after Superman 3. Um, I never saw Finders Keepers or The Return of the Musketeers. Um, uh, didn't see any of the documentary shorts he did in the early 90s. Um, so, I, you know, for me, the last taste I got of him was his take on Superman. Not a good one. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I ended uh, with him as well. And um, it's it's funny because you go and you watch those early Beatles films. And I mean, this is a guy who MTV gave him an award uh, calling him the father of the music video because of what he did in those early Beatles films. And I think there's something to that. And I think he took that and brought a lot of that life and that kind of that the sensibilities of the camera and the cutting and just kind of the the whole style to a lot of those films that he was doing in the 60s. And I don't think it necessarily carried through in his period films in the 70s. But I do think that he had a creative touch. And I really enjoyed that, especially the beginning, like the way that we began with just kind of imagery of like rotten apples and and the sun and swords and sand and the one-eyed man. And it was a really interesting, compelling opening for this film. And so I, I felt like I was in pretty assured hands. But uh, And then then I was reminded that it's Richard Lester and kind of everything that happened to him later, like ten, in the next 10 years after this film. And it's like, oh boy, this is a guy who, you know, I just don't know if Superman uh, really was something that he should have gotten involved in, because I feel like he really just made a mess of all of that. Well, I certainly can't imagine it's something that he wants to be remembered by. I, I don't know, but it it's it feels like that was, um, well, it was clearly reputation-defining work. When Yeah, when a film is re-released decades later as like the Richard Donner cut, yeah. and, you know, your part of it is is pretty much pushed to the side, I think that speaks a lot to kind of what people <laughs> think yeah. of you and, and what you did to something, so... Pretty yeah. interesting. So I'll go watch A Hard Day's Night, everybody. Yes. Watch watch the early stuff of him. Yeah. But I think that this shows me that he, there's an interesting director here. And actually, if anything that I'm pulling out of this, I'm finding that I think that I'm curious to see more of his films. And I'm really curious to see the three and four Musketeers films that he did um, a little bit before this. So uh, he's, an, he's an interesting director, and I would like to see uh, some more of him. The Three Musketeers, I feel like I have seen. That was uh, Richard Chamberlain uh, and Raquel Welch in, in that one, right? But I have no real memory of it. It came out, I was very, very young, like, you know, baby. And uh, so I would have seen it years later. And I, I just have this memory of uh, of the hats and, and an eye patch. And it just is, I, I feel like I liked it, but 
I'm that's that's one that needs to be higher on the list. I think maybe our next grand experiment with uh, these sorts of antique characters following Robin Hood, maybe it should be the Three Musketeers. Well, that would be interesting. It would be interesting to kind of look at and see. And, I, you know, just reading about that one, it does say it adheres close to the novel and also injects a fair amount of humor. So that <laughs> might speak to what they were trying to do here, you know, kind of add some of that humor in that they thought it needed. Anytime you add a little slapstick to these these <laughs> grand military stories, I think you really nail it. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So over on Patreon.com slash The Next Real Pete, people can support us at various levels. The, the lowest, of course, is just $1 a month. Just $1 a month. You don't even know it's gone. That's how inconsequential it is on your end. But on our end, it's a great help because it really helps us keep this show going. So head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You can check it out at $1 a month. You are, you're basically, you know, giving us a tip saying, you know, we, I, I believe in you. I support you. Thank you for having these conversations. You also get into some members only discord channels. Or you can contribute $5 or more a month and you're at the concessionaire level where you have uh, access to, not only do you have access to early shows, but you also have access to the live stream as we record where you can listen in and make fun of us while we uh, have all of our back channel (laughs) battling about what's going on with the way the show is being put together. Head on over to thenextreel.com slash Patreon where you can see all these different levels that you can join at and you can contribute and you can help us. Thank you for your support. Uh, so I have a, a minor fact and tidbit. Is it a fact or a tidbit? It's a fidbit. Tact? It's a tactful fidbit. Outstanding. <laughs> um, <laughs> Richard Lester actually wanted Charlton Heston to be in this film in a cameo role. Wouldn't that have been interesting? Oh, dear. But Heston would he have been? Would only have been wanted one to be the... in it if he could play the lead. <laughs> of wow. Course. So guess what? He's not in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> also, what I think is interesting is that the producers of the film actually wanted Albert Finney to play Robin, and they actually wanted Sean Connery to be in it, but to play Little John. How would that casting see, have worked for you? I can absolutely see that. Can't you see that? Sean Connery with the big beard, just looking just like Robin Hood, but as Little John. And I think he is taller than Albert Finney because he's taller than a lot of people. That, I think, would have been a great pair. Here's a question for you, Pete. Just say somebody decided, I'm going to make another Robin and Marion film. It's going to be, but it's going to be more of Robin later in life later later in life and i'm going to cast sean connery as as uh as when you say later 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 in life what give me just a geriatric robert finney okay so cast albert finney now i think he passed away but um but cast sean connery now can you see somebody doing this like a much later in life sean connery yes is that too late no i could totally see it it's a whole different thing but i can see it 
Uh, that'd be really interesting. They're making a, Stallone is making another Rambo movie, man. That's right. Why can't we have another? Why can't we have I, another? Jerry Connery was very excited to be in this film because he was very much, especially after the James Bond films, very much be looking forward to being in a film where he knew he would not be asked to do a sequel. <laughs> Did was it interesting at all that he rarely wore underwear in this movie? The, I I kind of felt like I saw that as he was kind of hopping off a tree or something, and you're like, "Wow, he is he wearing anything under there?" You know, and I'm not judgmental. I yeah, a guy can do what he wants with his undercarriage in him. It is, it's fine. I struggled when he would fall out of a tree, clearly commando, and then jump on a horse. I struggled heartily <laughs> with that. In, in other words, you wouldn't do that. Well, a gentleman wouldn't do that. Let's just, <laughs> I don't need to say, I don't need to personalize it. I think we both know where we're going. A gentleman does not ride quite so bareback. Uh, I, I think the Scottish people might have something to say to you. Oh, Scott. Braveheart, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> Intern, get the Scots on the line. That's right. Um, going back to the score, this is my last fact and tidbit for you. Um, Michelle Legrand, who we've talked about before oh. when we were talking about, uh, what was the film we talked about? Uh, the girl, Young Girls of Rochefort, right? Yes. He was a right. the composer there, and I think he is an interesting composer. He also did uh, the one with, uh, why am I blanking on the name? It could have been Steve really Queen fun. and uh, Faye Dunaway. The Getaway. Thomas Crown Affair. Thomas Crown Affair. I think he's a really interesting composer. He actually apparently wrote a score for this. It was a rejected and uh, only released in 2009. Now, I'm actually really curious to hear that score. And knowing your disdain for the John Barry score, I can't help but feel like you need to seek this out and listen to it and, and let me know if you think it actually would have been better. I do. I feel like that should be on my list of things to do. And just I'm going to rewatch Robin and Marion with this score playing. Do it. Do really it. loud. <laughs> All right. I don't have any more facts and tidbits. And then, I will tell you right now, Pete, as far as awards go, this film is not in the award bracket at all. Not a single nomination of any kind. Wow. So. Well, that's uh, one point in old Pete's bank book right there. I wouldn't have given it any awards either. How about the box office? You get were you able to get anything? Uh, how how to do with the box office? Well, like Disney's version uh, made just three years earlier, Lester's take on this tale cost five million dollars to make. That's actually cheaper than Disney's, however, due to inflation, only costing twenty two point five million in today's dollars, which was about six point three million less. The movie was released March 11th, 1976, opposite a biopic I didn't even know existed, Gable and Lombard, which is about the passionate and eventually doomed relationship between the two Hollywood stars. I want to see that now. I didn't even know that yeah. had been made. Uh, but, you know, this film did okay for itself, earning back $8.7 at the box office, which is about $39.2 in today's dollars. All told, that gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of 157925 Not a princely sum, but enough to say it was a success. All right, Andy. Well, I, I'm glad we made it over the Hump movie, and I'm excited to see how this one uh, fares when we take it to the mat. Let's we take it. it to the woods. We take it to the field. And mm. start hacking away at it. We're going to have our own little duel. 
Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies that Andy and I have talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flick chart, just give it a little tap. It should take you right to this movie where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stands up against ours. First up, we have Connery versus Connery, Robin and Marion, or Murder on the Orient Express. I'm going to go Murder on the Orient Express, please. Hey, there's Albert Finney and Sean Connery. There you go. Together on screen. I'll take Murder as well. Robin and Marion, or the silent Douglas Fairbanks as Robin Hood. Oh, silent Douglas Fairbanks as Robin I will take Hood. Robin and Marion. Really? Hmm. All right. Yes, I will. I'm surprised you're taking Robin Hood. Yeah, but I there am. we are. There I we am. are. That's where Let's we are. It. All right. One, One two, two, three. Scissors. Paper. Oh, curse you. There we go. Robin and Marion or Russian dolls? Um, Russian dolls. I'm going to take Robin and Marion. Really? Again? Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, here All we right. go again. All right. One, One two, two. Three. Scissors. Crush you. I crush crush me. Crush you. Robin and Marion or Lupin the Third, the castle of Cagliostro. Hands down, I'm going with Lupin the Third. I will take Lupin as well. Yes, you will. Robin and Marion or Compulsion. Compulsion. Definitely Compulsion. Yeah. Easy. Robin Robin and Marion or the Book of Eli. Book of Eli. Yeah, I'll take Book of Eli. Robin and Marion or Atlantic City. Another aged man in love. Yeah, that was weird with the lemon juice. Never <laughs> quite figured that one out. I still think I'd probably go with Atlantic City. I, uh, hmm, I will mm. too. You will too? Okay. Right. I will too. Yeah. Robin and Marion or La Femme Nikita? Uh, La Femme Nikita. Yeah, I will take Nikita as well. Robin and Marion or Robin and the Seven Hoods? I'm thinking Robin and Marion. I'm on Robin and Marion as well. Okay. All right. Let's go with it. All right. Robin and Marion landed at 310 out of 414 on our chart. That puts Robin and Marion, Robin and the Seven Hoods, and the 1922 Robin Hood all in a row. (laughs) Right next to each other. 310, 311, 312. How funny is that? Uh, They're not doing great, these Robin Hood movies in general. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. This one it's it's very frustrating for me. This is one of those 70s films that is compelling and needs to be retold because I think there is a really amazing story here that's just not completely told the way that it needed to be. For me this landed 2321 out of 4192 on my letterbox, which is about a 45%. This one hit uh, eight twenty two out of eleven hundred on my flick chart, and that is uh, oof twenty five percent. If I were to go by the algorithm to take us over to Letterbox, that would be uh, one and a half stars. Um, hmm. I think it's it it's hovering right in that area. I was I was leaning at two stars as we started this, and I'm I'm not sure if it's gotten better or worse. Where are you? Uh, I'm at three stars and the like. All right. I will inflate to two and a half stars. Uh, I'm not going to give it a like. It's a middling film for me, and we'll see if on further viewing it improves. Interestingly, that um, is basically the same ratings we gave uh, the last Robin Hood <laughs> film, except reversed. <laughs> 
I gave it a two and a half and you gave it a three. That's fine. Um, although we both gave it a heart on that right. one. So. so you're saying I should give it a heart? Is that what you're saying? No, I, no, I, I don't think. You well, need maybe to. now I'm, I'm just, rethinking uh, this I'm because just if I, the point I have already said that I am willing to watch this movie again, maybe that's enough. Maybe I should give it a heart. Uh, it's it's interesting that will you will watch it again? Yes. All right, I'm going to let that hang. <laughs> well, next up, everybody, we are going to be looking at this. Is I think the big one that uh, we all know and love. I think because mm. it it was kind of like came out at that perfect point in our lives uh, to really kind of connect with a Robin Hood film. It is the 1991 Kevin Costner vehicle robin hood prince of thieves directed by his then buddy kevin reynolds everything i do andy Ooh, say it say it i do it for you there it is <laughs> so good it should be a fun one to look at again i haven't seen it in ages and yeah. i will be watching the extended cut that's what i was so going to ask curious. you extended cut or theatrical cut i don't know what i should do well, my library only have the extended cut, so do you, <laughs> like, well, what's I guess the, I'm watching that one. What's the difference in runtime? Do you know off the top of your head? I looked it up. Let me tell you. Uh, hold, please. The extended cut it, is... It's just a, one more Brian Adams song. <laughs> one more, right. Uh, everything I do, I do it for you and you. <laughs> I do it for all of you. <laughs> looks like the extended cut is 155 minutes so that's uh what 120 130 two hours 35 minutes All right. according to imdb the film was released at two hours and 23 minutes so it's about 12 minutes longer all right i can deal with that yeah. uh i'm i'm excited about this one even though you know i'm not a big fan of the two by four but i have some very strong emotional connections to this movie Yes, indeed. And this one will be interesting to look for, uh, I think, um, Prince John. Yep. And the Sheriff of Nottingham. Mar Marion Fitzwalter. Marion Fitzwalter. Will, I think, will have a little more prominence in this yes. one. Uh, it, it's going to be inter interesting. And also, this is the one where, uh, I mean, at least in our series, we actually start getting characters coming back from... Uh, from the Middle East with Robin when he returns That's right. from the Crusades. That's right. we will have Morgan Freeman joining him as Azim. Outstanding. Uh, I, I'm very excited about it. Uh, we've got some other things coming up. Make sure if you haven't, the, uh, the, the guys have gotten together and they have uh, come back and given us a recent film board if you haven't checked that one out. Uh, and uh, they also, the Trailer Rewind guys, did Destroyer, uh, which is a great film to check out. Uh, if you'd like to hear them talk about it, make sure you uh, skip back in your feed and check that one out. It's a real hoot. Unless we forget that uh, we are releasing hiatus episodes for the Marvel Movie Minute. Uh, we are looking at the Hulk <laughs> that's our next uh, film. And so we thought it'd be fun to look at all the TV movies and all the other iterations of Hulk. So we're looking at the five TV movies along with Ang Lee's film as our hiatus episodes. So th by the time this comes out, I think we will have, what, two of our episodes available? Or is that's it still right. just one by the time oh, this comes I, out? I think we'll have two available by then. Uh, I don't uh, know which two. The first one, well, definitely the Incredible, Incredible Hulk, Hulk. And the return of the Incredible And the Hulk. return of the Incredible That's what it is. It's going yeah. to be fun. So far, it's been great. Surprisingly great. Y'all, <laughs> seriously, not what you think you remember. It's better than that. Lots of fun. That's right. 
when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. I went uh, I went high this week since I wasn't as enthusiastic about the movie, and I think I found one that is um, as much a review as it is a poem. Uh, mm. I don't know how to how to interpret it correctly. Just I, I need you to know as I'm reading it, every paragraph starts with an ampersand. Ew, okay. Are you going to say and each time? I'm, I will be saying and. <laughs> I don't believe they were supposed to be interpreted as bullets, but I, I'll, I, shall, I shall begin. Okay. 2011 five-star review. Best ever. Bar none. And there are more than a few outstanding actors who have been Robin Hood on the screen, Russell Crowe, Errol Flynn, Jason Connery on the little screen. And Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn gave the Robin Hood story its heroism. Most of them do, its depth and its humanity. This is not a cardboard cutout love story. It's a love story for romantics who have grown older and wiser and who are still in love. Robert Shaw plays a conflicted sheriff of Nottingham, a soldier faced with fighting an opponent he knows is better man than he is because the king says he must. And Nicole Williamson as Little John is both Robin's friend and a realist who worries that his old friend's insistence that he is the Robin Hood of the ballads is bound to end in disaster. Little John knows that Robin has grown old and that his muscles ache in the cold and the wet but he follows him to Sherwood, nonetheless. And Richard Harris is a splendid, mad megalomaniac, King Richard Lionheart, who dies in a French field fighting for nothing more than a piece of carved stone. Bar none, Robin and Marion is the best Robin Hood ever. And scene. Wow. There's a lot of ampersands in there. I don't know if you could tell. I tried to lean in on them a little bit. Oh, they yes. were everywhere. It's, they they usually fit. It wasn't just like randomly thrown between words that shouldn't have an and between them, though. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of, you know, if you're going to pick it apart. <laughs> well, that's what poetry's for me. It's yours. Uh, well, speaking of poetry, weirdly, I have one that kind of looks like it. There's There's no real poetry, but it looks like they were writing it as such. So mm. it's a one star who uh, written by NR. And this is what NR has to say. You'll you'll probably agree completely. An absolutely horrible ending, totally out of thin air, ruined the movie, makes you angry that you trusted them, made you demand you wasted time back. The movie should have been good, though it was self-confused. Sometimes it was a spoof, which might have been filmed with Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Sometimes it was a serious, realistic reconsideration of the ancient and powerful Robin Hood legends. All well produced, but then the ending. Marion murders Robin and kills herself, and as they die, Robin tells Marion he loves her. 
the whole movie has encouraged you to reimagine the heroic, legendary, almost superhuman figures as heroic in their own real, non-superhuman way. Then suddenly, both Marion and Robin are nothing but murderous psychopaths. <laughs> this is true spoiler of an ending. So if you read this, you have now been saved from a spoiler. This person doesn't understand how to do spoiler alerts. <laughs> a horrible, senseless ending ruins the whole movie. Wow. And, see. and the same could be said of that review. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> you know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with the big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No, n not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman! can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible. 